This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Rachel Maddow, the YouTube user Karen MoveOn, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, The Progressive Magazine, The White House Whiteboard, and Jim Hightower. And a note of clarification that this is not actually another episode about racism. It just sounds like it. Former South Carolina Republican Governor Mark Sanford, the man who did more to make the Appalachian Trail famous than anybody who's actually hiked it, uh, is on his way to Congress today after winning a special election for the first congressional district seat last night in South Carolina. That seat became vacant earlier this year when the guy who previously held it, Congressman Tim Scott, uh, the guy on the left here, was promoted up to the Senate by Governor Nikki Haley. She picked Tim Scott to fill the seat in the Senate that was vacated by the guy on the right. Republican Senator Jim DeMint. Jim DeMint quit his Senate seat late last year because he got a better offer. He took a job as the guy who runs the Heritage Foundation. Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank, a supposed font of serious policy analysis and research from a right-wing perspective. It was kind of a weird hire for the Heritage Foundation. Not because Jim DeMint isn't a famous guy, or maybe not even because he's not a capable guy, but Jim DeMint was not the thinkiest United States senator out there. Previously, he had owned an advertising firm. Once he got to the Senate, his legislative agenda was things like sponsoring the Commemorative Coins Reform Act. A bill that had it passed would have forced senators to pay for the printing costs of commemorative resolutions. Earth-shifting policy wonkery was not what Jim DeMint was known for in the Senate. Jim DeMint was known as a campaigner. He was a guy who tried to get other super-duper conservative Republicans elected. He backed candidates like Sharon Engel in Nevada. Remember her with the Second Amendment remedies? Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, I am not a witch. Those campaigns flamed out so brightly and magnificently that their glow can still be seen in another galaxy today. But the Heritage Foundation is in the news today because under Jim DeMint's leadership as a think tank, it is trying to kill the prospect of immigration reform. Capital K, capital ill, they are trying to kill it. But the Heritage Foundation is not supposed to be a campaigning organization. They're supposed to be a think tank. They're supposed to be an august institution that deals with policy facts and figures and complex data sets. They can't appear to just be killing immigration with just straight up politics. They have to try to kill immigration reform with something that looks like research, something that looks like a study of some kind. This is the Heritage Foundation's brand spanking new study on immigration reform. Study on immigrants, really. It looks very serious. It has a boring name and everything. The fiscal cost of unlawful immigrants and amnesty to the U.S. taxpayer. Cracking it open to look at the report's conclusions, we see that immigrants are uh, always on welfare. They just take, 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 take. Immigrants are low achieving and uneducated. Immigrants will never contribute to the economy in any meaningful way because they all have a serious case of the poors. Based on those conclusions and some math so fuzzy that it might as well be television static, the Heritage Foundation assigned a seemingly random number to what they say would be the cost of immigration reform. Guess what? It would cost a bazillion dollars. Six trillion dollars is what they came up with. Their basic argument is that immigrants are parasites, and their children will be too. But wait, there's more. Uh, One of the two authors of the report is a guy named Jason Richwine. Not a billionaire Bond villain. He's a doctor. Uh, Mr. Richwine has a PhD from Harvard. In order to get that doctorate a couple of years ago, he, of course, had to write a dissertation. His dissertation was called IQ and Immigration Policy. 
Washington Post's Wonk blog today reporting that that dissertation was a treasure trove of ideas straight out of the era of eugenics. Quote, the average IQ of immigrants in the United States is substantially lower than that of the white native population, and the difference is likely to persist over several generations. Quote, no one knows whether Hispanics will ever reach IQ parity with whites, but the prediction that new Hispanic immigrants will have low IQ children and grandchildren is difficult to argue against. The solution he proposes is an immigration system based on IQ selection. But he says, don't call it that. That would be politically unseemly. Instead, it should be called skills-based immigration. People won't freak out if we call it a skills-based selection process. This was Jason Richwine's academic research on immigration and his corresponding policy conclusions from back in 2009. Basically, the foreign foreigners immigrating to the United States lack the intellectual capacity to properly contribute to white American society. It's innate. They are uneducated. They will always be uneducated. So will their children be, based on those conclusions that he made back in 2009. It is not difficult to see where the basic idea of the new study from the Heritage Foundation came from. When asked about the authorship of their new immigration report and his past dabbling in well, what seems like eugenics. The Heritage Foundation put out a statement today saying, quote, Dr. Richwine did not shape the methodology or the policy recommendations in the Heritage paper. He provided quantitative support to the lead author. So don't worry, our report is still totally legit. He just did the counting part. He just did the quantitative part. So Mark Sanford, welcome to Washington, where you amazingly do not have the most terrifying past. And immigration reform with enemies like these, I think you may just be just fine. The battle over immigration reform is often about economic fear, fear that immigrants are hurting the economy for native-born Americans. But that fear is based on several economic myths. Myth number one, it will strain already overburdened government safety net programs like Social Security and Medicare. Wrong. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office finds that immigration reform will actually reduce the budget deficit by hundreds of billions of dollars. Why is that? Because while they seek citizenship, undocumented workers will be required to pay into Social Security and Medicare, even though they won't be eligible for them. They're also younger, on average, than the typical worker. So even when they're citizens, they'll be paying into Social Security and Medicare far longer. Myth two, new immigrants take away jobs from native-born Americans. Wrong again. The economy doesn't contain a fixed number of jobs to be divided up among people who need them. As an economy grows, it creates more jobs. And what we've seen over the last 200 years is that new immigrants to America fuel that growth and thereby create more jobs for everyone. We've also learned that new immigrants are, by definition, ambitious. I mean, they wouldn't have borne all the risks and hardships of immigrating to the United States if they weren't. And that ambition and hard work help the economy grow even faster. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that immigration reform will increase economic growth by more than 3% 10 years from now, 5% in 20 years. 
Ambition also helps explain why the children of new immigrants earn more college degrees on average than the children of native-born, which also helps grow the economy and create more jobs. Myth number three, we don't need new immigrants. Wrong again. The American population is aging rapidly. Forty years ago, there were five workers for every retiree. Now there are three. If present trends continue, there will be only two workers for every retiree by the year 2025. No economy can survive on a ratio of two workers per retiree. But because new immigrants are on average younger than native-born Americans, they'll help bring that ratio back down. They're needed so we can continue to have a vibrant economy. Get it? Three wrongs don't make a right. The right answer is immigration reform is not only good for undocumented workers, it's also good for the rest of us. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song, and it's a good day for moving along. Yes, it's a good day. How could anything be wrong? A good day from morning to night. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. It turns out the new census report is out and... Uh, the uh, Republicans are going to think the storm is coming because <laughs> <laughs> here comes the Latinos. Eleven million Latinos cast votes in last year's election. Uh, that is a very high number, of course, higher than it used to be. In fact, one point four million voters more since two thousand and eight. So that's a significant increase. Now, the Republicans understand that this storm is coming, so of course they're trying to prevent the storm. And there's guys like Mike Lee, who's a Republican from Utah, Tea Party guy, and uh, he says, look, 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 don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I want to have some undocumented immigrants in the country, and I want to prevent uh, others from coming in. And so I'm going to make an exception here on uh, some of the e-verify system. So is he not merciful? These are the people that he is allowing into the country. Okay, but all, uh, meaning like these are the jobs they can have. They cannot have any other jobs according to one of the bills that Mike Lee is proposing. Cooks, waiters, butlers. I love how the Republicans yeah. think that there are still butlers. It's a growth industry. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, housekeepers, governesses. I didn't know there was governesses no. around. I, okay, the Von Trapp family is going to be psyched. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maids, valets, babysitters. These, I guess, all the things that Republicans valets. have. Valets. Valets. I mean, who has a valet? Yeah. Well, you missed cobblers and apothecaries. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They got those, but they're not allowed. Oh, well, okay, they could these be apprentices, are right. uh, We continue. Janitors, laundresses, furnacemen, okay, caretakers, handymen, gardeners, footmen. 
You, you need yeah, footmen. Right. I don't know what they do, but they're either on foot or they're taking care of your feet. And then, pre and then President Madison the went into the house. <laughs> and said, I do declare a nice yeah, job, Mr. Nice footman. Okay. This is crazy. Grooms, I don't know if brides are allowed, but grooms, grooms are. are allowed, yeah. uh, and you, know, you know what that's for, though, right? No, I horses. don't. It's for horses. Yes, oh, this is the Mitt Romney bill. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we also have chauffeurs of automobiles for family use mm -hmm. that is still allowed. Now, if you're using it for business, oh, please, not, right. not a lot. Yeah. So, but look at how demeaning this is. These are the immigrants that are allowed. You can not get those immigrant. jobs. This, this harkens back to, to Reconstruction and when they were freeing the slaves initially during emancipation. They would say, well, well the good blacks... We can, we're going to keep some of the good blacks in the South to do some of the jobs, but we're going to have to pay them a little bit now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, you know, so it's the exact same thing. You know, yeah. the, good, the good Latins will let in to, to clean our horses, but other than that, yeah. we're out. So, gee, I wonder why the Republicans can't get Latino votes. Yeah. They're saying, well, look, are we not merciful? We're going to let you be our gardeners and our governesses. I wonder if this bill actually comes as a result of that $10 million on Latino outreach they were going to put forward <laughs> yeah. for the next election. It could be. You know, um, and Jamel Bowie had an article in the American Prospect, I, I think it was last week, that talked about the changing Latino vote. It made me think that the, Latino, that the Republicans should play a long game with the Latino vote because at a certain point, because of intermarrying that's going to happen two, three generations away, the same way the Italian vote isn't the Italian vote anymore, mm. people stop identifying. People on their censuses were filling out that they were white rather than Latin if their grandparents were Mexican but married a Mexican white. So there's a reason for the Republicans to actually look at the, at the Latino vote as something that could help them uh, as, as people become more upwardly mo mobile. But, but this is the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, every time they do something this dumb on this issue, it just makes me smile. But I can't believe it either, because they're, they're ordinarily so smart about this stuff. Yeah, well, the storm is apparently going to be even larger when it comes. And by the way, don't worry that one of the other ways they're going to fix it, guys, is that Ted Cruz is now their new star Republican senator from Texas, and he's Latino, so mission accomplished. So what's Ted Cruz's uh, amendment? He was born in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, it helps with the Canadian vote a lot, too. Huge, right? yeah. So what's his big uh, contribution to this immigration bill? Because that's Mike Lee's amendment. Ted Cruz also has an amendment. It bans all pathways of citizenship. Even the governesses are out. The footmen are out. Yeah. Everyone is out. So look, we have our Latino star who hates Latinos even more than the right. non-Latinos do. But it's an immigration bill. That's what it's at, at its core. None so, of it. None no, of it. No, yeah. no, no citizenship. Well, who's going to buttle for me now, though? Yeah, that's it's, a good It doesn't point, go yeah. through. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> You'll have to just get some white butler from Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and finally... Um, there was one other Republican uh, amendment to the immigration bill that was noteworthy. Uh, they said, well, okay, fine, fine, fine. How about we allow people in the country who are really, really rich? Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't see that coming. Oh, really? It requires undocumented immigrants who apply for citizenship to have an income four times the poverty line. Okay, now, it's not absurdly wealthy, but basically they're saying, like, well, if you got money, don't get me wrong, you're more likely to vote for us. So... Welcome to America. Papers are not, you don't need papers. Yeah. That's for butlers. And look, it's racist, obviously. It's also racist. But if you combine this with what we heard, I forget if it was, I think it might have been Gingrich or, or some, one, one Republican politician recently put across that bill that, um, you know, if students, young students in elementary school, if they want like free lunches or if they want student aid, they should have to be janitors in the schools. Yeah, yeah New Gingrich. Yeah. New Gingrich, okay, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, the, the idea is that we see these incoming immigrants historically in a historical lens of they will make our country better, maybe not immediately in the first year, but they come in, they bring new ideas, they, they innovate, and the next generations will be stronger as a result of this influx of new ambitious blood. That's historically how America has worked. But they can't see that. They see it at, at probably parasites, but if not parasites, maybe they can buttle or right. they can groom my horse. But they look different and they speak a different language, mm -hmm. which is totally at odds with this the, the sort of white patrician old, you know, wasp uh, blood that was in America to begin with. So it, it's it's the yeah. same thing over and over again. It's the same people that didn't want to free the slaves. It's it, it's not. I'm not likening it to that. But the mentality is somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And look, when they think of uh, immigrants and they think of Latinos, they think the storm is coming. Rush Limbaugh says he'll support amnesty for illegal immigrants, but they can't vote for 25 years. This is actually, it sounds like just a stupid Rush Limbaugh comment, but this is like a key part of much of the resistance to allowing people who have been in this country, particularly from Spanish-speaking countries, to stay. The voting thing is actually key. Let's listen to Rush Limbaugh and hear what he has to say. Never be granted. Now, that's similar to a proposal that we made. Okay, we'll support amnesty on this program with one proviso, and that is that everybody granted amnesty can't vote for 25 years. Mm. Yes. Okay, so there's Rush Limbaugh. Now, it might sound like typical Rush Limbaugh nonsense. But he's being completely honest. This is a real issue with immigration reform. Hispanic voters are mostly progressive, with the exception of some Cubans. Overall, just about every, every Hispanic group votes overwhelmingly for progressive candidates. The more progressive, the better. And uh, this is in spite of significant Catholic uh, religion among, among Hispanics. And in addition to that, the changing demographics of this country are increasing the percentage of voters over the next several election cycles that are that are Hispanic, and that's also going to hurt Republicans. This is this is actually the strategy. We you know we could listen to ten crazy quotes from Rush Limbaugh, and and a lot of them don't really have a basis in the actual thinking strategy and fears of conservative political operatives, but Natan. This is their fear. This is a very real thing and why they want to keep particularly Hispanic immigrants out of this country. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a win-win basically for Democrats because either immigration reform doesn't get done and Republicans get the blame and they benefit politically from it, or it gets done and over the next 15 years they get a political benefit. Why? You know, it's possible that at some point down the road uh, Republicans will make inroads with Hispanics, but not in the next few years, not when most of these people become citizens. On the other hand, uh, it's kind of bizarre. It seems like Rush Limbaugh either supports a second-class citizenship status where you become a citizen but you can't vote, which is absurd, or he's saying that you can't become a citizen for 25 years, which is against current immigration rules. 
Yeah, so Lewis, this, that, that's actually the, if we actually analyze this at its face, getting some rights of citizenship is kind of like being somewhat pregnant. It's like you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant at any given point in time. You're either a citizen or you're not, and this is kind of like a partial citizenship or literally a second tier, a second right. class of citizenship. Right, well, amnesty could mean citizenship, or it just could mean that, well, you're not doing anything illegal anymore. You you're a permanent stay. resident. But assuming he says they can't vote, I assume that means that amnesty in his in his mind would mean citizenship. E exactly. Some kind of second class of citizenship. Yeah. And it's funny, while your average uh, Limbaugh listener probably only is concerned about jobs and uh, things of that nature when it comes to illegal immigration, clearly Rush does not care about anything <laughs> other than who's going to get elected when of all course. of these illegal immigrants are uh, legalized. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like this show. Can you be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. CBS Evening News pegged a story May 1st to a rally that day in Los Angeles, with thousands of people calling for changes in U.S. immigration policy. Organized by labor activists, students, civil rights advocates, and clergy, it was just the largest of more than a dozen similar demonstrations across California. And CBS's report started by noting that the views of the protesters, that there should be paths to legal citizenship for many currently undocumented immigrants, reflect overwhelming public opinion. The network's poll showed 83% in favor of such reforms, with just 14% opposed. CBS didn't say what percentage of that opposed minority consists of people comfortable referring to immigrants as invaders and smugglers and thinking about killing them, but the segment, it turns out, is a sympathetic profile of one such person. Juan Mercado lives on border property his family has owned since the 1850s, we're told, but now part of the property has become a crossing spot for immigrants. We never hear what particular dangers that poses for him, but the piece ends with reporter Anna Werner noting approvingly that Mercado, quote, plans to rely on his own security system, close quote, namely the carbine he shows her. He explains how he could get a clip. Werner chimes in, you're ready. And she closes the segment, quote, a personal line of defense in the front lines of a national debate, close quote. Further proof that, for some, the idea that journalism's job is to shed light but not heat is just so many words.
Louis Gohmert's back in the news. More stupidity coming out of him. He was talking about uh, about uh, uh, radical Islamists and why we should fear them, and he tied it in in a very weird way to immigration reform. The FBI director has confirmed more than once that we know there are radical Islamists that change their names to Hispanic-sounding last names. They come to Mexico and get a, an ID. And some of them even learn a little bit of Spanish so that they can try to act as if they're Hispanic. Why? Because we don't have any fear of Hispanics coming into the country. Okay. I mean, Jesus Christ. This guy's such uh, an awesome goobert. Why? And, and I also love, by the way, you guys don't have any fears of Hispanics coming into the country. What are you talking about? We're not about? passing immigration reform specifically because you fear Hispanics coming into the country. The, uh, but also, it's really, I mean, that's deep-seated, great, old-fashioned racism. I mean, that's like, you don't fear Hispanics enough. Like, you, you don't, it's not enough that they take our jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to think that they might blow you up. Like yeah. You need to be. You need to fear that they're violent, and you don't. Fear and, and that they also might not really be Hispanic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, because we know, we know you can't tell a guy from a guy. Yeah, from that's the Iran idea. What you may not know is there's hundreds of thousands of Lebanese who've lived in Mexico for decades. Oh, oh well, wait till he finds that out. <laughs> okay. And I love the made-up stuff. Uh, the FBI director has confirmed it for me. The, the Muslims have changed their name to Hispanic names. I know it's uh, Al Juan bin Rodriguez, and, <laughs> and, he, and they're crossing the border on a daily basis. The FBI director has confirmed it, yeah, so yeah. it must be true. You told me, yeah, yeah. This guy was a judge. He was oh. a judge. People went before him with their lives in balance. Yeah, Jesus. in Texas too. In Texas, where, right? And the where your life is very often in generally balance. in balance. Yeah. And, and the bottom line is to take all the things you guys have been saying. What he wants to do is he wants to get us to hate Hispanics as much as we hate Muslims. Yes. Right. So that that's the mission here. I don't think I don't it's think so. I, I think it's well, I think it's fear. Oh, fear. Yeah, fear is right. fate. I fair. think he wants us to fear them. Yeah, we'll, yes. Yeah. Okay. My bad. I stand corrected. <laughs> he wants us to fear him as much, not as hate him. What drives a man to lock his doors and bar his windows tight? To leave his lights on time and so his house appears so bright. A temper fence around his door and cameras on the walls. A fortress so secure that he can hardly get in at all. Fear is a villain when he grips you late at night. He'll catch you when your back is turned, he's watching you. So the Republicans have been scrambling. Uh, Reince Priebus said they're doing an outreach to people. They're trying to get minorities to vote for them. They're trying to not sound like such a-holes all the time to people who aren't white and heterosexual. And uh, so Steve King, he's a uh, right-wing Republican from Iowa. He's always pretty vocal, says a lot of incendiary things. They he sat down and they asked him uh, why is he against uh, why is he against the immig comprehensive immigration reform because he's against it. And uh, well, let's let's just listen to some of the stuff he had to say. Yeah, you know, there doesn't mean that there aren't groups of people in this country. Oh, okay. So all right, hang on. That uh, you know that I have sympathy for. I do, and there are kids that were brought into this country by their parents unknowing that they were breaking the law and they will say to me and others who defend the rule yeah sure they were brought here by their parents but you'd be amazed how many mexican babies illegally crawled into this country <laughs> yeah so here we go here's more they will say to me and others who defend the rule of law we have to do something about the 11 million and some of them are valedictorians well my answer to that is and then by the way their parents brought them in it wasn't their fault 
It's true in some cases, but they aren't all valedictorians. They They're not all valedictorians. Sure, some of them can read. <laughs> some of them can read, but most of them, most of them, ready? Weren't all brought in by their parents. Uh, for everyone who's a valedictorian, there's another hundred out there that um, they weigh 130 pounds and they've got calves the size of cantaloupes because they're hauling 75 pounds of marijuana across the desert. <laughs> Those people. <laughs> How does he know the actual weight of the marijuana? I wonder about that. I think they sound rather fit. <laughs> they've got sprink. They've got calves the size of cantaloupes. They're 130 pounds. They've got calves the size of cantaloupes because they're hauling 70 pounds of marijuana. That's why. You know, when I uh, when I lived in L.A. and I used to go to the uh, Home Depot uh, parking lot. Uh, I just noticed, like, I would just say, man, those Mexicans are so buff. I so envy them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But, you know, and Mac it's all for, so he's saying for every one good Mexican, there are a hundred bad ones, mm. uh, statistic based on his need to make shit up about Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> right? Mexican. Look it up. And all of those, uh, <laughs> that hundred, that hundred bad Mexicans all in one car. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't call them mostly banditos. I like the way the Mexicans in L.A. Uh, cover up their obvious drug running by living in abject poverty. <laughs> Sneaky. They're uh, hiding their money. Sure, they have calves the size of cantaloupes, and some of them have cantaloupes the size of watermelons. What? <laughs> I don't trust any of them. I don't trust any of them. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't tell the innocent. So then they ask him... They ask him, you know, how, what do you do? So there's good ones and there's bad ones. Hang on. Legalized with the same act. And until the folks that want to open the borders and grant this amnesty can define the difference between the, the innocent ones who have deep ties with America and those who have been, I'll say, undermining our culture and civilization and profiting from criminal, <laughs> what? criminal acts. Our civilization. <laughs> That's a lot. Is he talking about the bankers? He said yeah. until... I think he's talking about the, the natives, right? The Indians. The think, Aztecs or something? I think he's talking about the Comanches. Yes. Here we go. Can define that difference? They should not advocate for amnesty for both good and evil. So so he says, until you can come up with a system that differentiates between the good Mexicans and the bad ones, I'm against immigration reform. So the guy asked him the obvious question. And how would you recommend separating uh, the good from the bad? <laughs> I, I suggest that it can't be done. <laughs> <laughs> you could round them up. That's one thing. You Are we do. saying adios to the valedictorians? So, I'm guess, so I guess no... There will never be immigration reform because there's no, it can't be done. We can never tell the good Mexicans from the bad ones. So that's it. Never going to have immigration reform. I mean, if the cantaloupe thigh thing is true, surely just a centrifuge. <laughs> oh, you need to separate them. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, maybe if they, if their, if their calves really are like cantaloupes, maybe they can all be in Gallagher's act. <laughs> <laughs> I know some views that could be in Gallagher's act. I, you know, that that entire thing was wrong on overt and subtle ways. I mean, when <laughs> he, like he says, like, uh, when people say to me, uh, you know, and people like me who protect the rule of law, I was like, whoa! Yeah, yeah. Really, that's the way you're going to portray yourself? That there are straw men out there yeah. who speak <laughs> to you, mm -hmm. a protector of the rule of law, law. unlike everybody else you're right. who... Goes into public service. I, oh. So here I got, I think I, I have. I don't know. I, Jimmy, I'm sorry. I'm just sitting here trying to figure out if I'm one of the good ones. 
Look at no way to tell. Look at her legs. Look at her legs. No way to tell. Let me see. Do you have cantaloupes down there? Yes. Uh, those look like those yeah, look like a couple. You're a Steph. You're a teacher at school, but I don't think you're any kind of valedictorian. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I look at her calf spring. She's got a couple of bananas, maybe in there. <laughs> That's it. Mostly, mostly. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activist director Katie Klobusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, The Dream Is Now. Comprehensive immigration reform is collecting dust in the House of Representatives. In June, the Senate passed S-744, the Border Security, Economic Opportunity, and Immigration Modernization Act, by a 68-32 to 32 margin. The bill covers border security, enforcement, immigrant visas, and non-immigrant visas. Meanwhile, House leaders favor a piecemeal approach that would result in families being torn apart, important parts of our economy springing hard-to-patch leaks, and continuing to send undocumented children home to countries many have never so much as visited. It can be hard to rally support behind holes in the economy, so many coalitions championed comprehensive reform are putting the human faces of the dreamers up front. They are the living, breathing examples of what results when lawmakers pass the buck and use duct tape to prop up a crumbling organizational infrastructure like our country's immigration system. The Dream Is Now is one such coalition. Their mission statement is to use the personal stories of brave, outspoken dreamers to call for, quote, common sense reform that gives all undocumented immigrants the chance to earn their citizenship and contribute fully to our society. They're applying pressure to lawmakers' sense of justice through a short documentary and their sense of fiscal responsibility by reminding them that deporting just the Dreamers will cost the U.S. $329 billion by 2030. The Dream Is Now has an action for every involvement level. You can attend town halls, call your representatives, host a screening, tweet, upload your personal story via video, poems, or essays, spread the word, and share the film. Their Take Action page makes it easy with downloadable letters, autofill social media messages, banners and profile pictures, and a calendar of events. Join The Dream Is Now and their more than three dozen partners, groups such as the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, and the Center for American Progress. Visit thedreamisnow.org and demand real comprehensive immigration reform. Links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. Visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for updates on this and other activism opportunities. Also, remember that we encourage you to use your phone or other mobile device to record audio of your experience at any political event you attend to send in and be used on the show. Fuck it up. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy you can't take one fucking man's help unfuck it up? Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me?
The hostility of the Republican Party to immigration reform is really something to see. You'd have thought after the shellacking they took from Latino voters at the polls in November that they might want to soften their tone and modify their position on this issue and actually treat the 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country as human beings. But no, you can count on most Republican politicians to remain obdurately out of touch. More than half of the Republicans in the Senate voted against immigration reform, and Marco Rubio is getting a ton of flack on his right side for championing it. Over in the House, where Republicans hold the majority, the most hidebound members of the party are gleefully predicting the bill's demise. One member said the House should fold it up into a paper airplane and throw it out the window. John Boehner himself said the House isn't going to take up and vote on whatever the Senate passes. Instead, he promises a long, drawn-out process in the House where immigration reform may go to die. This may be a way to preserve his leadership post within the party, but it also may spell doom for the Republicans in 2016. As John McCain warned, the party will go down to defeat if it doesn't pass immigration reform and doesn't run a candidate who is more in tune on this issue. And that would serve them right again. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Serve you right to suffer. Serve you right to be alone. Serve you right to suffer. Serve you right to be alone. Because you are still living the day done packing down. There was a poll of 500 people conducted at George Regents University, and they wanted to see if people were more likely to save a foreigner or if they were more likely to save a dog if there was a bus rushing toward it. Um, and what's incredible is, uh, as this study was taking place, respondents wanted to know exactly what kind of person would they be saving. When they were notified that it was a foreigner, the results of the study were insane. Forty percent said that they would save the animal over a foreign tourist. Now, that's it's so sad. Oh, my God, our society is so mental. Okay, so mental over two things. One, how much we dislike foreigners. Like, oh, it's an immigrant. Oh, my God, they got cantaloupe calves. Oh, no, they're going to blow us up. What's happening? Oh, they're going to bring Sharia law. Save the dog, right? Secondly, we're mental about dogs. I know, I don't have a dog. I, I know, but like, oh, no, 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 the dog is precious. Okay, The so dog is innocent, whereas all humans are guilty. So let me jump in for a second. I'm a dog owner. I'm a dog lover. I'm obsessed with dogs. Check out my Instagram. I would say like 90% of my pictures are of dog pictures. Well, but agree to disagree. 50% are selfies. Anyway... <laughs> Anyways, um, I actually took a picture today with the dog, so a little bit of both, a little mixy mix. Okay. But I will say this, people generally view dogs as vulnerable, helpless, lovable creatures. Mm. Whereas, I mean, think about the leadership in our country and think about politicians in our country that are constantly saying really hideous things about foreigners, right? We, whenever we have the immigrant uh, discussion, whenever we talk about, um, you know, immigration reform, you have two sides of the story, and one side is usually very, very hateful toward 
you know, immigrants, undocumented immigrants specifically. So when you hear stuff like that over and over again, you hear these people be demonized, then does it surprise me that 40% of people would rather save uh, an animal which they view as vulnerable and helpless as opposed to the foreigner? It doesn't surprise me at all. Not saying that I would vote that way. I'm just saying I could understand the psychology behind it. So think about all the d different stereotyping we do in this country, and it happens in all the countries. It's just different stereotypes depending on where you live. So in America, it just lists through all the different foreign tourists who might be here in the framing of that question. Uh, the Russians, oh, the Russians, the commies, you know, they're out mm -hmm. to get us, they're our rivals. Uh, the Saudis, you know how they are, you know, the Muslims and the bombs, etc. The Mexicans, we don't even have to talk about they're the Mexicans. They're going to steal our jobs, exactly. okay, they lead to crime in the country, they're, they're bringing dangerous. all this disease, etc. All right, let's go to the French. Oh, we, we, yeah, those arrogant asses, we're not going to save them, I'm going to slay Fluffy instead. So, I mean, you go down the list, is there anyone we like? So I should note that while they were surveying these respondents, they did not specify uh, where the foreigners came from. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, it was specifically Islamophobia or xenophobia that, that led to these types of answers. But I am curious to see, like, what would happen if it was a French foreigner as opposed to uh, a Muslim foreigner? Well, they should do that study next. Because, look, to be fair to the respondents, they also asked them, would you save uh, a family member or a friend, they're like, uh, all right, I guess the family member over the dog. <laughs> like, even the grandparents, like, grandparents, okay, I'll go with the grandparent over yeah. the dog. Oh, it's somebody I don't know. It's a foreigner. It's all Fluffy. about... But it's all about fear, too, Jenk, because what I found really interesting about this study was that 46% of women would rather save the dog as opposed to the foreigner. Yeah, so. it, well, you would think men would be... Yeah, I don't know, more vicious, whatever, but men saved the human beings more than the women did. So that doesn't speak well uh, of, of the female race. That's a slight difference, female gender, I should say. Finally, it's, human beings are fascinating. At the end of the article, they mentioned something that the Nazis did that I did not know. Turns out the Nazis, after they would send people to concentration camps to murder them, they would then treat their pets incredibly humanely. They would make sure their pets were well taken care of. You just murdered the family, including the kids. That you didn't mind, but they're like, oh my God, what happens to Rover? We gotta make sure, okay? So human beings are messed up in that sense. And the main reason is, like, whoever you're killing or targeting or you're doing your specific kind of xenophobia towards, well, they had it coming, they were the enemy, they were the bad guys. But a dog is always innocent. You've probably heard lots of talk about fixing our nation's broken immigration system over the past few months, and maybe you're wondering how immigration reform will affect American jobs and our economy. Well, the Congressional Budget Office, an independent, nonpartisan group of number crunchers that both Democrats and Republicans trust to estimate the cost of any proposed law, looked into it. And they found that fixing America's broken immigration system would be a pretty big boost for the economy. These experts say that the Senate's bipartisan immigration reform bill would grow the economy create jobs, and cut the deficit. In fact, they estimate that if immigration reform were passed this year, it could help boost our nation's gross domestic product, or GDP, by more than 5%, or $1.4 trillion in 2033. Let's take a look at how they get to a number like that.
Our country already attracts the best and brightest from around the world, from budding entrepreneurs to highly skilled and other hardworking immigrants to students seeking graduate degrees. But the current broken system often prevents them and their ideas from staying in the U.S. Immigration reform will make it easier for entrepreneurs to come here and start businesses, creating good jobs for American workers. Reform will make it easier for highly skilled immigrants and those educated in U.S. colleges and universities to work right here in America, developing the new technologies and innovative processes that make our economy more productive and more competitive. And a highly skilled workforce in a more productive economy increases the rate of return for businesses and companies who invest in the United States of America, and that leads to more investment in the future. Now, here's where it gets a little wonky. Taken together, more entrepreneurs and skilled workers, plus higher productivity, plus increased investment in the U.S., would increase real GDP by 3.3 percent by 2023 and 5.4 percent by 2033, a real increase of roughly 700 billion dollars in our economy in 2023 and 1.4 trillion dollars in 2033. That's a lot, all thanks to reforming our broken immigration system. There are other benefits to immigration reform. Immigration reform will boost demand for goods and services, which in turn means more demand for labor, and that means more jobs for American workers. Fixing our immigration system would also mean that everyone, especially those employers who are paying their employees under the table, will play by the same set of rules and pay the same taxes that everybody else pays. The amount of money these workers and employers will pay in taxes will reduce our deficit—the difference between what the government receives and what it spends—by nearly 850 billion dollars over the next two decades. So the facts are clear: the economic case for immigration reform is strong, and folks all across the ideological spectrum and all over the country—Democrats and Republicans, labor unions and business leaders, economists of all stripes—agree. The good news is Democrats and Republicans came together in the Senate to pass an immigration reform bill, but now it's time for the House to act. So President Obama can sign the bill into law. Only then will we see the deficit reduction, the innovation, and the economic growth that immigration reform promises. If you found this video helpful, please share it far and wide with your friends. Thanks for watching. This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as five dollars a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics from me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, draw me. An email at j at bestofleft dot com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestofleft dot com. Thanks so much for your support. Good fences make good neighbors. Goes the old adage. That civilizing thought refers to such friendly structures as the rock fences of New England and whitewashed pickets of the Midwest. But the neighborly adage definitely did not contemplate the 700-mile, 20-foot-high, drone-patrolled, electronically monitored steel and razor wire barricade that our government has erected across our nation's border with Mexico. This thing is not a fence, but a monstrous wall of hostility, a deliberate affront to our Mexican neighbors. As Senator John McCain aptly put it, "We have the most militarized border since the fall of the Berlin Wall."
There are four big flaws with the theory that you can secure a border by throwing up a big old wall. First, it doesn't work. A 20-foot wall quickly begets 22-foot ladders. People determined to get in or out will find many inventive ways to do it. Second, walls create bigger problems than they resolve, for they are deeply divisive. Our Mexican wall is ugly, both literally and in the unmistakable message of contempt it screams at the Mexican people. It's generating bitterness toward us, and that turns neighbors into enemies. Third, that wall has physically ripped previously united cross-border families, friends, businesses, and cities apart, weakening both sides. Fourth, such walls are insanely expensive. So far, Washington has hurled tens of billions of dollars at this one to build, maintain, and police it, and states have dumped billions more into it. Can these policymakers even spell W-A-S-T-E? Yet. The U.S. Senate recently voted to waste another $46 billion to build 700 more miles of the hateful wall and double the number of militarized border agents. This is Jim Hightower saying, Is there no other need in our country for that money? Nothing constructive we might do with it? Big legislative achievements in President Obama's first term. Health reform, obviously, is the big one, something Democrats have been trying to achieve for 60 years. President Obama and the Democrats in Congress got that done. Also, Wall Street reform to try to stop the worst of the abuses there that led to the financial crisis at the end of the Bush presidency, to preclude the possibility of another giant Wall Street bailout like we had at the end of those years. Also, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, so women can sue to get equal pay as men doing the same work. Also, the Nuclear Arms Treaty with Russia, the START Treaty, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, expanding the hate crimes law, overhauling student loans to take out the weird, subsidized, private middleman in the loan system that was there for no reason. The 9-11 First Responders Bill, the stimulus. Remember cash for clunkers, right? The president had a lot of legislative accomplishments in his first term, particularly when he had Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress. In his second term, the president has been pretty clear about what he's aiming to do with this half of his presidency. He's talked about taking action on some tough stuff, um, climate change. He's already made a go at some federal gun reforms, although that has been a very tough slog already. And of course, the big kahuna that everybody's waiting to see how it turns out, say it with me now, immigration reform. Starting about five seconds after the 2012 election results were announced, even lots of Republicans and lots of conservative pundits agreed that there was really no excuse to keep not fixing our stupid and broken immigration system, which has been stupid and broken for decades. It has been stupid and broken for so long because of Congress's inability to get it fixed. The previous Republican president could not even get his own party in Congress to go along with his effort to fix the system. But in 2012, after losing the presidency to a Democratic president who went from 67% of the Latino vote in 2008 to 71% of the Latino vote in 2012, as Mitt Romney just got trounced, after the 2012 election results, even Republicans were conceding it was time to fix the immigration system. And thus was born 
a vague, mist-like, esoteric sense in Washington that something would happen. Surely, if the political logic is this clear and so many important people, even in Republican politics, see that political logic that is so clear, then surely, doesn't it seem like something will happen? Feels that way. And yes, after hemming and hawing of almost epic proportions, the United States Senate, controlled by Democrats, did pass an immigration bill. The Senate is controlled by Democrats, but 14 Republican senators crossed over to get it passed. Passing in the Senate, though, does not mean it has passed into law. And having a vague, misty sense that it must pass, that it ought to pass, that it might pass, that surely it's got to pass, right? That vague, abstract, positive feeling that it should pass is also not the same thing as something actually passing into law. It really does have to go through the House, too. And the House really is controlled by Republicans. And whatever funky-smelling cloud of smoke has settled over the Beltway's reasoning on this subject about how surely it's got to pass, it doesn't seem like the Republicans are going to let it pass. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee is a key gatekeeper for this thing. If it can't get past him, it can't get past his committee. And if it can't get past his committee, then it can't get a vote. And last night, he did a town hall at which he said he will do everything he can to ensure that the Senate's comprehensive immigration bill never gets taken up in the House. He said he is flat out opposed to the whole point of the bill, and it will never happen. He's saying that he will do whatever it takes. He will do whatever he can, and what he can do is stop it, plainly, personally. He said that around 7 p.m. Eastern last night. And although this vague sense persists in the punditocracy that surely something's going to happen, it has to pass. Republicans would be insane not to fix this problem for themselves. Even though that unsourced feel-good sense still seems to pervade Washington and people who are paid to watch it for a living. If the Republicans who control the House say no, then it's no. It's not going to happen. And as of 7 p.m. last night, they are saying no, full stop. And I know that in the, in, in, in the marginal sense of what has just been advanced, it's just this anonymous guy, Bob Goodlatte, who nobody could pick out of a lineup. It seems like a process story, and it's not getting much press today because he's not all that famous. But he's the head of the committee who has to make it happen, and he's saying no. And this is a huge moment on a huge issue, arguably the hugest issue in Washington for four years. And the Republicans are flat out saying, no, don't care, we aren't going to do it. Put a pin in this story today. Even though the headlines about it have not been huge, put a pin in it. Unless something changes radically, the Republicans just killed immigration for the foreseeable future in this third week of August 2013. And on their heads will fall the political consequences probably for a generation hence. You pay the price It's much too late For good advice You know and I know That our good things through Because there's consequences To what we do Consequences For me and you Now Steve King has said some insane things in the past He's a congressman from Iowa Unsurprisingly he's a Republican uh, well, he's decided that he is going to be uh, the cop that stops all immigration reform. In fact, he's doing a stop amnesty tour right now going across the country. He started in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the crowd was sparse, to say the least. I'll show you the crowd at the end. Uh, and he had a new way of attacking immigrants. Uh, in the past, you know, he said that the dreamers, the ones who are successful students going on to college, 
or people joining the military were, who were brought in by their families here without documentation. He said, no, 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 no. They're actually mostly drug smugglers, and they have calves like cantaloupe because of all the 75 pounds of marijuana that they, they all drag into the country. So the guy who brought you cantaloupe calves now says this. If you bring, if you bring people from a violent civilization into a less violent civilization, you're going to have more violence, right? It's like pouring hot water into cold water. Does it raise the temperature or not? Mm. Good point about the water there. I hadn't thought of that. I like how all of Latin America, and in fact the whole world is now a violent civilization, because he doesn't like immigrants from any parts of the world, although he has made an exception in the past, to be fair, for rich immigrants. He said they're the better dogs, the hardworking dogs, whereas the immigrants from other countries are the lazy dogs. Literally, that's what he said. Okay, and he, and he said we should build an electric fence, and if it electric, you assume that's what we do with livestock. There's a lot of animal references with Steve King and immigrants. But here he's saying the rest of the world is so violent, but the U.S., we're the nonviolent civilization. Really? So the nonviolent country is the one that did the genocide of Native Americans, nearly wiped them off the face of the earth. They're the one who did the enslavement of millions of Africans, brought them over here in chains, basically a form of kidnapping, rape, um, tremendous violence, whippings, etc. We did Manifest Destiny. It sounds so lovely in history class. It was basically the violent takeover of the middle part of this continent. And if you didn't like it, uh, well, we'd kill you. And then we had afterwards dozens of wars and coups that we started, like, for example, invading Iraq that did not attack us on 9-11, thereby leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. And, oh, right, we were the only country to ever use a nuclear weapon, and, in fact, we did that twice. Now, you see how we're the nonviolent civilization? And to have these violent guys come in, man, I mean, if, they, if enough of them come in, we might use a nuke a third time. I hadn't thought of that. So, well, you say, look, that's in the past. Jenk, you're being unfair. How about today? Now, there is significant violence in Mexico, for example. Why? Because of the war on drugs. Who started the war on drugs? Oh, yeah, that's us. And we insisted that Mexico and the rest of Latin America fight our war on drugs. And what happened? We had tremendous gang warfare. But if you actually look at rates of violence across the world, we don't do so well here in the U.S. Today, not in the past, today. So here's a list of countries that are developed countries and the gun murder rate in those countries, yes, that's us in the end in red. We're number one by a landslide. Chile is trying to keep up, but not doing very well. Uh, we're crushing Turkey, which is in third place. Now, look, that's just developed countries and just gun murders. So let's just uh, look at all crime and see how we do there per capita. In the next map, you'll see that the darker red means more crime. Yes, again, we're number one by a landslide for the whole world. Russia, good luck trying to keep up. We're kicking your ass. But you see how we're the nonviolent civilization, and the rest of the world is very violent, and that's why we got to keep them out. Steve King, good point. I hadn't thought of that. In fact, not a lot of people got to hear that point, and it's a shame because uh, it's such a brilliant point, because here's what his rally looked like. This is uh, Matthew Boyle took a picture at the rally. He says... There are maybe 30 people here at this Richmond Town Hall rally against amnesty, and I think he's being awfully generous. If you see other pictures, Steve King is actually speaking a good distance away from those guys, 
all by himself and looks mentally challenged. But he's the guy trying to keep up the keep out the others because they're violent. They got cantaloupe calves, and they're the ones causing problems. And they're the dogs that don't work hard enough, according to Steve King. By the way, I found out today, and one more fun fact about Steve King: turns out his hero was Joe McCarthy. Not kidding. He said he was a great American hero. Well, that begins to explain all. Hi, Jay. This is Tanya in Sassoon City, California. I've been listening to your podcast for about a year. And during that time, it's become sort of increasingly apparent to me that there seems to be a disproportionate number of voicemails played from male callers. And this just started out as an anecdotal observation on my part. So I wanted to make sure that my impression was correct. So I did a little study, and I went back over every single episode between August 30th, 2013, to March 27th, 2013, which are episodes number 702 through 750, and I found the following. You played 110 voicemails. Of those, 88 were from men and 22 were from women, which breaks down to 80% male and 20% female. So given this, I have a few questions for you. Um, first, I wanted to know if you have any demographic data on who is downloading your podcast. Could it possibly be that your listener base is 80% male, which would explain the discrepancy. I figure it'll be easier to answer these questions as we go, so I'll just jump in now and say, uh, yes, I actually do have demographic information, and it's better than I thought. Uh, I've had a survey running on the website. I never, ever promote it, but people have been taking the survey because uh, they stumble uh, upon it since the inception of the show, basically. And I, I thought until today that the demographic information I had was cumulative, uh, that, that the information I got from the survey was literally just, you know, more than a thousand people who have taken the survey over the course of seven years or whatever. Uh, but I went and looked at it today and they actually do break it down by year. I think that's new. They didn't used to do that. So for 2012, the last full year where I got enough responses to be, you know, hopefully representative uh, of 304 respondents, 66% were male, 34% were female for the year 2012. So I think that's probably the most accurate number I, I've seen uh, about my show. It, it's been trending downward. For, for men, uh, in the early days, definitely, I think men were early adopters of the you know, newest podcasting technology, that sort of thing, and so it definitely started trending way, 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 like up in the seventy and eighty percent range, uh, men versus women. And now, as I expected it would, it's it's trending down, but you know, men are still fairly dominant. Second, can you give us an idea of what percentage of the voicemails that you receive are actually played? Because I have no idea if it's like 5% or 95%. I just went right now and I counted all of the voicemails that have been played since the beginning of August through today, and then also counted the number of voicemails I have that didn't get played from the beginning of August through today. And it turns out about 40% of the total number of voicemails that came in, about 40% of them got played on the show. And then third, do you have any impression, or data would be better, 
of the gender breakdown of the voicemails that you receive but don't get played. So in other words, are men and women leaving voicemails in equal numbers, but you're selecting the male callers at a disproportionate rate? And there may be some reasons for this. Maybe the female callers are leaving longer messages that are outside of your time parameters or something. I just went and scanned the last uh, 50 voicemails that did not get played on the show. You know, I just have them in iTunes so I could scan through 50 of them looking at the names. And 46 of those 50 were from men. Four of them were from women. And one of those four was nearly five minutes long and it didn't get played for that reason while the other three were not played just for normal reasons. So I guess I'm trying to determine if the disproportionate number of male voicemails is due to some unconscious bias on your part or if women simply aren't calling in at the same rate as men. And if that's the case, then I have a call to action for women listeners. We need to hear your voices. It is so distressing to me that our commentary is underrepresented. I think the voicemails are a really important part of driving the discussion and probably also the direction of Jay's work. We need to hear from you. Um, and to Jay, to whatever extent the disparity could be caused by an unconscious bias on your part, I hope if that's the case, you'll be sensitive to that when selecting whose voices get heard. Thanks very much for your work. I really enjoy your show. Boy, don't I wish that this was a problem that I could solve just by paying a little bit more attention myself. Uh, the fact is, for, for reasons I don't dare speculate on, I do think that women tend to call into the show at a rate lower than they listen to the show, and men seem to call in at a rate higher than they listen to the show. So I, I'm, I am definitely aware of this as I'm making my selections of the voicemails that get played. I, I try to at least have female voices be represented at the same level as they are calling in if not a little bit more and that still puts them at, at quite a disadvantage in the overall scheme of things compared to all the male voicemails that get left so I, I absolutely second that call to action for more women to call in and try to level the playing field a little bit I, I definitely agree that I think I and all the listeners would benefit from hearing those voices Hey, Jay, this is Danny from Bellingham, Washington, and I was just calling you regarding your uh, episode about the advancement of women in America, and I just wanted to share that I actually just recently, the other night, I was uh, with my brother after we had just driven through the city, and um, we grew up in a really small town, a really minuscule town in eastern Washington, where uh, the... Where sexism and homophobia is just, it's part of the culture, and uh, he only just recently left that on you know, for uh, a little over a year, and we drove past this woman on the side of the road, and he immediately just said, oh yeah, she was hot, and I made some snappy comment about him objectifying women. He got really defensive because we grew up in a feminist family. My mother was a pri has been the primary income maker in our family since we were born and um so he got really defensive and then later that night we stayed up until midnight and I had to explain to him how even his comment on her appearance how that was perpetuating the problem of the objectification of women in our society and I had to go through it and explain to him that at the end of the conversation he was just blown away because he didn't realize he had been so just altered by our culture and how ingrained it is into the culture to see women as sex objects, he was so 
used to that, that she couldn't even realize that his actions, things that he did on an everyday basis, without even realizing that it was being, that it was a problem and that women wouldn't appreciate it, how it was putting them in a poor socioeconomic position. So I thought that was really interesting. I just wanted to share that with you. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just a quick update today. In the last episode, I announced that I wanted to do a little bit of a membership drive for the show. I wanted to get 20 new members uh, basically by September 20th. That's when I'm leaving for a climate ride. And so the show itself is going to be, it's going to have to take, you know, one episode off for, you know, while I'm riding my bike from New York to Washington, D.C. But I said that if I could get 20 new members to sort of uh, stem the tide a little bit uh, of the downward slope of, of my membership program as of late, then I would, uh, you know, commit myself to actually recording daily dispatches from the ride and putting those out for the members in in the uh, members-only bonus feed. So uh, update is that we already have five new members, just like that, uh, just since the last episode. So huge thanks to all those who uh, signed up new. Um, A couple of people, I think, uh, just upgraded their old memberships. So huge thanks to all of those, 15 more members, and uh, that's what the members will be getting, uh, daily dispatches from the climate ride. I, I'm, I'm excited to do it if, if we can make it happen. So for all the details on membership, just visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, uh, please do that. iTunes, the RSS feed, smartphone apps like Stitcher, Best of the Left has its own smartphone app for iPhone, Android, Windows 8, etc. Thanks especially to those who support the show, of course, members and one-time donors. It's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what